got your Bibles, turn with me to, to John in the first chapter. A couple of years ago, I uh, uh, is, is with is the same similar situation to Pastor Dan. Uh, we pastored a church out in Orangeville for a few years, and um, I had an opportunity to preach through several New Testament books, a lot like what Pastor Steve does here. We went through First uh, and Second Corinthians. We went through Philippians. Uh, we went through the book of Ephesians. And um, as you're going through those books, you learn a lot. And one of the things that began to develop in me was as I went through those books was I wanted to, I mean, I appreciate obviously the writings of Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament or a lot of the New Testament. But what I really wanted to do or God developed in me was a strong desire or hunger to learn about Jesus from the Gospels. And so as part of my studies, what I did was I, I looked around at various studies that were out there, and I came across um, a teacher that I've known for a number of years and have, have looked at his ministry, and um, his name is Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum. He's a Jewish believer, and he has a ministry called Ariel Ministries, which he's a Jewish believer, and he ministers to other Jewish people, teaching them about the Messiah. And what he did in his study of the Gospels was to look at things, the Gospels in particular, from a first-century Jewish perspective. And um, as I got involved in the study and started looking at it, I was fascinated by uh, what his material was. And he takes it off of A.T. Robertson's book, A Harmony of the Gospels. I don't know how many of you have one of these, but if you don't, this is a good addition to your library because it takes the synoptic Gospels, the Gospels, and puts it in chronological order. And so you can see all of the, the, uh, the similar texts all on one page, and he's done a a fantastic job with that. But generally speaking, as we study the life of Messiah, whether it's in a home fellowship study or in Bible college or in a Bible institute or even in seminary, the typical approach is to look at things, the historical background and the cultural context from a Greek or from a Roman perspective. And when you've heard the, when you study the scriptures, you have to see the context and it's helpful if you go back and study some of the background. And that's true, especially when you look at the, at the book of Acts or Galatians or Corinthians. It's good to get that background, but, but having come from a Gentile background, having come from a Bible Institute training, I could relate to what he was saying in terms of looking at those things strictly from a Greek or from a Roman perspective. And it's important to do that. It's important to know these passages from a Greek or Roman perspective when you're looking at those books. But when you get to the Gospels, it changes. There's a, there's a difference in the Gospels because the Gospels were written by Jewish people about a Jewish Messiah. And so from the Gospels, you have to sort of switch gears and look at things from a Jewish perspective. That knowledge of that culture and that background, that first century Judaism, that frame of reference was readily available to the church up until about the fourth century. However, sometime in the fourth century, the predominant church at that time chose to ignore the Gospels and its particular Jewish perspective. And unfortunately, as a result of that, much of that first century Jewish knowledge has been lost. And as a result of that, unfortunately, there's been a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of confusion about many aspects of Jesus' teaching. 
In fact, it's gotten to the point where if you look at church history and spend any time studying church history at all, you'll see these misunderstandings and these confusions leading to new denominations, leading to splits and and confusion within the church. And unfortunately, if you look at much church history at all, you'll see that there's actually been wars that have been fought over what these different terms mean. For example, phrases like, what does it mean to be born of water? And as we'll see from our study as we get into it this morning, the word, the term to be born of water had a very specific Jewish meaning. But nobody has bothered to ask a Jewish person what it meant. And before you know it, a whole new denomination on baptism crops up just on that phrase alone. When the, when the gospel writers wrote the gospels, they used Jewish terminology, Jewish background, Jewish idioms. Jewish phrases that they didn't bother explaining in the Gospels because everybody in their readership knew what those phrases meant. And that background, unfortunately, has been lost and and does lead to and has led to a lot of uh, confusion and a lack of understanding about the first century Jewish perspective. And as I studied this this material and went through it in preparation for uh, preaching at, at our church, I began to realize how important it was. I've read the Gospels like you guys have many, many times. And what I began to realize was how much I was missing in understanding what was really being said and what was really trying to be conveyed in the Gospels because I didn't have that first century Jewish perspective. I was reading it from a Greek and Roman perspective because that's what I've been taught. That's how I've been taught as I was raised in Sunday school and as I was raised in the church. And so what I began to realize how important it really is to understand fully who the Messiah is, to understand that Jewish perspective. And what that ultimately ends up doing is it throws you back into the Old Testament. And we have to have a comprehensive understanding of the Old Testament in order to understand a lot of what we see in the Gospels. Let me give you an example. If you've grown up in a church, or if you've watched television, you probably are familiar with the different ways in which Jesus is often portrayed. To a certain extent, we're all victims of these portrayals. In our Sunday school classes, we see Jesus sitting on the hillside teaching the masses. And on TV, we see Jesus portrayed as a mild-mannered, soft-spoken, even sometimes docile man with little or no power where he's marginalized to the point of being conveyed as a good teacher. This has happened for centuries. This has been going on for a long, long time. In fact, in John Piper's book, What Jesus Demands From Us, he makes the point that over the centuries there have been many attempts to redefine Jesus. Historical descriptions of him go much farther than the accounts provided in the gospel. He writes, the portrayal of Jesus in the Gospels of the New Testament is the only portrayal that has any chance of shaping the church and the world over the long haul. The portrayal of Jesus in the Gospels of the New Testament is the only portrayal that has any chance of shaping the church and the world over the long haul. So who is this Jesus Who is this Jesus? If you look at the Gospels, what does he say about himself? What does he say about all these life issues that we find ourselves 
in. And if we were to have him here this morning in bodily form, what would he want to try to communicate to us in the 21st century? And as many are saying, is the gospel itself still relevant to us today? This morning what I want to do is try to take a couple of examples from scriptures and show in particular how first century knowledge of first knowledge of first century pharisaical Judaism, how much of that was 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 is important or interesting as you study the life of the Messiah. And I want to look at just a couple of examples. There are many. As I went through this study, what I did was I started to take notes and and obviously in preparation for my sermons, but just in just to have it in general, and I'm not even a third of the way into it, and I've got 187 pages of notes. It's just so unbelievable how the life of the Messiah comes popping out at you and you begin to see Jesus from a whole different point of view. And so what I wanted to do as I sat down and tried to prepare for this message, try to pick a couple because we could be here all afternoon, obviously, if I wanted to show you all the examples in which Jesus revealed himself to the people. But we'll limit ourselves to just a couple because I know time is short. John chapter 1, starting with verses 43 And we're just going to read 43 through 46 this morning. But to set the context, Jesus is early on in his ministry and he's in this process where he's picking out disciples. He's finding men and he's walking up to them, literally walking up to them and saying, he's looking into their eyes and he's saying, follow me. That's it. That's the extent of his message to these people. And Philip was one of them in the text today. And he drops everything. They drop their businesses. They drop all that they're doing. And they follow Christ. To me, that blows me away. That is absolutely amazing how one person, Jesus Christ, can walk up to someone and say, follow me. And they drop everything and follow Christ. Well, that's what's happening in the text here this morning. John chapter 1, we'll start in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said, said to him, come, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, we have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathanael. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Come, see for yourself, Philip replied. Now, as you read that from a Greek or Roman perspective, okay, but what is this comment? He comes, nothing good comes from Nazareth. Well, to fully understand that or to get a better appreciation of that, I mean, in essence, what Nathaniel's doing is taking a jab or taking a swipe at where Jesus is from. He's not really being completely nice about it when he says, can any good thing come from Nazareth? He's being somewhat derogatory in his comments. So before he even has a chance to meet the Messiah, to meet this person that they read about Moses and the prophets, Nazareth's response was, can any good thing come from Nazareth? Well, the background behind this, the first century Judaism perspective, the rabbis taught in those days in Jerusalem during the first century that if you want to get rich, you go north. Now, Galilee's north. And Judea is south. Judea is where Jerusalem is. So if you're south, you're in Jerusalem. If you're north, you're up in the Galilean area. And this is where Jesus actually has his, his uh, uh, place of ministry was out of in, in Galilee, which is actually, it's a prettier 
place to be. If you want to be in, in Israel, you want to be up in the Galilean area. It's a lot nicer up there. It's cooler, a lot more green, and more like what we're, we're used to here. So they, the, the first century Jewish rabbis in Jerusalem said, if you want to get rich, you go north. If you want to get wise, you go south. The area known as Galilee was looked down upon by the Jews of Judea. Those in Galilee were looked upon as being materialistic and ignorant of spiritual things. That's what they were teaching in the rabbinical schools. If you want to get rich, you go north. If you want to become wise and spiritual, you go south. And if anybody was interested in getting rich, they would go north. But if you wanted to be spiritual and were interested in getting divine revelation or spiritual wisdom, you would go south. And that's what they were teaching. And the reason they were teaching that was because in Jerusalem was where they had all of the Jewish and rabbinical schools and academies there. But they didn't have those up north. In fact, Nicodemus in John chapter 7, verse 52 says he tries to make a defense of Jesus. The other Pharisees blurted out mistakenly, search and see out of Galilee arise no prophet. And they ignored that there were prophets that did arise out of Galilee. And this is something that's interesting because as these things were being taught, even the Galileans looked down upon fellow Galileans who came from the town of Nazareth. So even if you were from Galilee, you still looked down upon people who were from, from Nazareth. Nazareth was a town of ill repute. It was a town that did not have a good reputation. Being from Nazareth made Jesus a despised and rejected individual, but that too was in keeping with the writings of the prophets. Isn't that interesting? So when Nathaniel says, can any good thing come from Nazareth, that's what he's doing under his breath before he has a chance to meet the Messiah. That's his comment. So you can kind of get a sense for where Nathaniel is. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming towards him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Nathaniel said to him, how, are, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered and said to him, look what his response is. Okay, he just said, can any good thing come from Nazareth? Jesus says, how, um, Jesus says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. This is Nathaniel's response in verse 49. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now, I don't know about you guys, but there's been many times I've read passages like this. And I'm, I'm not really sure what's going on here, but I think there's something important going on. But I don't know what it is. I kind of scratch my head and I, and I, and I grasp what is, what is happening here because this is a very, very... Interesting exchange. It's a wild conclusion that Nathaniel would come to by Jesus saying to them, to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile, and when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, if that happened to you and me, okay, and it's just hypothetical, obviously, if Jesus were to come up to you and you were to have that same kind of exchange, would your response be, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Would that be your response? I don't ask for a show of hands. Just, it's just rhetorical. 
That would not have been my response. That's not how I would have responded. So there's obviously something else going on here, and this is where the benefit of having the first century Jewish perspective really helps in trying to understand more fully what's taking place here. And we'll try to try to get through this and try to make it uh, as clear as possible because it's sometimes this stuff gets confusing. Why did Nathaniel respond the way he did? How did he come to the conclusion by what Jesus said that Jesus, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel from what Jesus said to him? How did he get to that point? Go back to verse 47 and notice what Jesus calls him. He doesn't call him by name. His name's Nathaniel. Notice what he calls him. He calls him by title. He says, an Israelite. And after calling him Israel, he says, in whom is no deceit. Or in some of your translations you'll hear, in whom is no guile. Jesus is making a point of contrast here because the first person to ever be called Israel is Jacob. And even though we all tend to think of Jacob's whole life as being one full of guile or full of deceit, this is really inconsistent with the account in Genesis. He was really guilty of one act of guile, and that was when he deceived his father. And because of that deception with his father, he had to flee the household where he went to Haran and spent the next 20 years of his life. So in contrast to the first person who was called Israel... This descendant is being contrasted with the first and being characterized as being a person without guile or without deception. The next thing that we need to understand is that when Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree, it's not merely because he saw him under the fig tree that Jesus makes this point significant. The question is, what was Nathaniel doing under the fig tree? That's what we need to try to understand. Because in those days, it was impossible for everyone to have a copy of the Old Testament. So what they would do is they would go to the synagogue and listen to the Old Testament being uh, being read by the rabbis. And then they would memorize it. And this is just a side note. It's phenomenal to me that they would go to the... Because the scriptures were read frequently and they would go to the synagogue and listen to what was being said. And then they would hear it and they would memorize it. Shows you the kind of dedication Nathaniel had. And usually they would do this a whole chapter at a time. And to help with the memorization process, they would sit under the shade of a tree and meditate on that passage to be sure that they fully got that passage memorized. And so the rabbis also said that the best place to memorize scripture, the best place to memorize scripture is under a fig tree. That's what the rabbis were teaching in that first century. And they gave fig trees some kind of special status. In fact, in the Mishnah, the ancient Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, many of the rabbis um, would hold their classes under the fig tree because they felt it was a better place to study scriptures under a fig tree. So to put this all in context, so Nathaniel hears Jesus say to him, an Israelite in whom is no deceit, or in whom there is no guile, I saw you under the fig tree. His conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah is not based on the fact that Jesus saw him under the fig tree. That in of itself would not have led him to that conclusion. Nathaniel comes to the conclusion that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel, 
because he realized, now listen to this, he realizes that Jesus knew the passage of Scripture that he was meditating on while sitting underneath the shade of the fig tree. And that blew his mind. That's what he knew. That's what he could figure out. And it bears out as we continue to read the text. This will become more evident. Verse 50. Jesus answered and said to him, because I saw you, because I said I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? See, he's asking that question. Is that why you believe that I'm the Son of God, the King of Israel? Just because I saw you under a fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Where else in the Bible do we read about angels ascending and descending? Jacob's ladder in Genesis 28. He dreamt it right after he betrayed his brother Esau and had to leave and right after this act, this act of God that he had with his father. In other words, Nathan, Nathaniel concluded the Messiah had known the exact passage he was thinking about or meditating on. And this led him to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the King of Israel. And that blew his mind. And, and I got to tell you, when I was, was studying this and beginning to realize this, I've read the story lots of times in my life. And I've never understood it in that context. And it will never be the same for me when I read this story about Nathaniel under the fig tree. Because of the benefit of having some of that first century Judaism, that, that, the, how, what they taught as, as the rabbis as a background. We're going to look at another example real quickly here. And we're going to turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We're going to look at two encounters that Jesus has with two different men. And if you look, if you did a comparison between the two, you would see a lot of, of things that are contrasting and a lot of things that are similar. John chapter 3. Um, we're just going to read the first uh, 12 verses real quick. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do you do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again? The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, You are the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now this is a a somewhat familiar uh, 
exchange that happens between Nicodemus and Jesus. And this is another encounter. In fact, one of the things that I think is a fascinating study is to spend some time going through the Gospels and just look at those times where Jesus meets with people one-on-one and these one-on-one face-to-face encounters. It's fascinating. In fact, I wish I had time we could go through the interview contrasting Nicodemus and the woman at the well that happens next. It's just an incredible study. But here's Nicodemus, and he has this face-to-face with Jesus. What do we know about Nicodemus? And we're going to go through this very quickly. He was a Pharisee. The casual Bible reader, uh, the fact that, that, that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, it wouldn't really mean that much to us because we're not sensitive to that term. But in fact, in reality, the fact that he was a Pharisee ends up having a huge impact on the significance of this interview. We do the same thing today when we talk about Nicodemus being a Pharisee. We have categories, too, that we use. And when we use these categories, we don't have to explain them because most people understand what they mean. When we use the term, for example, we call someone a Baptist. When we talk to them about them being a Baptist, we knew some fundamental beliefs that that person has as being a Baptist. We know that that person believes in baptism by immersion. That's how they believe that one ought to be baptized. We also know other fundamental beliefs about that person when we call them a Baptist, that they believe in believer's baptism as opposed to infant baptism. They believe that someone becomes baptized as an outward testimony of what's taking place with them inside, and so they're they're baptized as a public uh, expression of what's happened to them inside. Conversely, we identify someone as a Presbyterian, and they believe in infant baptism, and they believe a little dabble do ya. They'll just sprinkle. And so from those terms, we understand a little bit about the fundamentals of their belief. And that's what Nicodemus was when we talk about him being a Pharisee. We know some things about his fundamental beliefs as distinguished from being a Sadducee or an Essene or some of the other uh, branches of Judaism of that day. There were certain fundamental beliefs that were characteristic of someone who was a Pharisee. And one of those Pharisaical teachings that plays into this particular interview is this. They believe and they taught that all of Israel has a share in the world to come. All of Israel. By virtue of you being born Jewish, you have a share in the world to come. If you were fortunate enough to have been born a Jew, you automatically got entrance into the kingdom of God. It was guaranteed by virtue of your pedigree or your heritage. When John the Baptist or Jesus would expose their sin, the Pharisees would quickly respond, but we are the children of Abraham. We are Jews, and by virtue of that fact, we are guaranteed share in the kingdom to come. It was a fundamental belief among the Pharisees at that time. Another part of their theology was that Abraham sits at the gates of Gehenna to save an Israelite consigned thereto. Abraham sits at the gate of Gehenna to save any Israelite consigned thereto. In other words, if by some heavenly bureaucratic mistake a Jew was accidentally sent to Gehenna, no problem, not to worry, because Abraham was there to keep you from falling into the lake of fire. That's what they were teaching. There was no way a person born a Jew was going to have to go to Gehenna or go to the other world. You would be in the kingdom to come or in the ages to come. 
Along these same lines, they've developed this phrase, to be born of water. And this is what we're going to get into this morning. To be born of water to a Jewish person. See, we, we wrestle over as Gentiles. What does that mean? What do they mean by that? And we have tons of commentaries that have tons of ideas about what that meant. All you have to do is ask a Jewish person, what does it mean to be born of water? And they will tell you. To be born of water meant to be born physically. To be born physically. There was no question, no debate about that. That was very clear. Anyone born of water as a Jew, born physically as a Jew, would share in the world to come. The second thing is that he was a ruler of the Jews, which meant he was a member of the Sanhedrin. So in Nicodemus, picture Nicodemus. He is a leader in his community. He is an elder in their, in their city of Jerusalem. He is a member of the Sanhedrin. In fact, you're going to learn later on in the interview that Jesus refers to him as the teacher, which meant one step higher. He was a leader of a rabbinical school. Nicodemus, if you go back and you read uh, some history about him, is a fascinating guy. He was not only very well educated, he was not only uh, a leader within his community, he felt very passionate about what he believed enough to go through the process of being involved in the leadership part of the Sanhedrin. He was the teacher of a rabbinical school. In fact, the writings of Josephus also talk about on his on his vocational side of, of uh, his work, he was a well digger. And if any of you have ever been to the Middle East or been to Ju- Jerusalem in particular, you know how important water is. Jose- Josephus says that he was a well digger and probably one of the top five most wealthy people in Jerusalem. He was smart. He had a, a good job. He had a wife. He had a good family. He was doing all the things that he needed to do. He was teaching that if you're born a Jew, you, had, you were able to share in the kingdom to come. And then he meets with Jesus and he has this interview. And this is Jesus' statement to him. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How do you tell Nicodemus he can't see the kingdom of God? You see, according to first century Judaism, you are, I'm, born, I'm, I'm born of Abraham. I'm a Jew. And this is how Jesus meets, meets him. This is his first face-to-face encounter with Nicodemus. Notice how Nicodemus responds. How can a man be born when he is old? He's not merely asking about the fact of being born again. He was confused. Uh, what was confusing to him was how it was possible for a man to be born again when he is old, or in, in uh, more in our vernacular, he was a senior citizen. This seemed to be somewhat confusing to him. You see, a lot of commentaries they, they try to understand the mind of Nicodemus and what would the big deal was, and they, they they say things like he didn't understand Jesus' question, he was confused about what it meant to be born again, and and all of these kinds of things. What they don't understand is that Nicodemus understood perfectly what it meant to be born again. That wasn't the issue. The issue was, how do I be born again when I'm old? Well, why was that an issue? To fully understand why Jesus posed this question as he did, it's necessary to understand what's happening here. In first century teaching of of Judaism, Pharisaical Judaism, there were six different ways of being born again. And Nicodemus qualified for four of the six ways. Two ways for which he did not qualify. And these are the two ways he did not qualify. 
In order to be born again, a Gentile would convert to Judaism. They were said to be born again. And nothing is said about Nicodemus being of the um, and, and since Nicodemus wasn't a Gentile, he was Jew, he couldn't be born again that way because he was not a Gentile. The second way a man could be born again was if a man uh, became king and was a house of David. When he, when he became king, he was said to have been born again. And nothing in the text indicates that Nicodemus was from the house of David. So those two ways he couldn't qualify to be born again. But there were four other ways that he could become born again. And these are the four ways in which he did qualify to be born again. The first was when a Jewish boy became bar mitzvah at the age of 13, at that age he was became subject to the Mosaic law and responsible for his own sins at the age of 13 when he became bar mitzvah. And obviously Nicodemus, being older than 13 and being a devout Jew, he would have already gone through this process of being bar mitzvah. The second way a person could be said to have been born again was when they got married. And for when a Jew married, he was said to have been born again. And although there's nothing said in the text about him being born again, it is said that he is part of the Sanhedrin. And one of the requirements to be part of the Sanhedrin was that you were married. And that's a lot of reasons why people suspect that maybe Paul was also married at one time because he was also a member of the Sanhedrin. So he qualified in that regard because he got married and he was said that he was born again. The third way, another way that a Jew could be born again was when they were ordained as a rabbi. And this happened usually around the age of 30. They would be bar mitzvah to 13. They would be married around the age of 20, 21. And at the age of 30, after long, many, many years of study, they could become a uh, ordained rabbi. And since Nicodemus was a Pharisee and a part of the Sanhedrin, he was uh, said to have been born again the third way as being a rabbi. The final way to be born again in Judaism was to become the head of a rabbinical school. That was the fourth and final way to become born again. And notice in verse 10, Jesus says to Nicodemus that he was the teacher of Israel. The one who was the head of rabbinical school was always referred to as the, the teacher of Israel. And so Nicodemus was also the head of a rabbinical school. He was born again the last and final way. The point then is this. Nicodemus had undergone all the processes available to Ju- in, within Judaism of that day. He had gone through every last one of them. He had done all the things that he was asked to do. He had dot, dotted all the I's, crossed all the T's. He had done everything that he needed to do. And then Jesus comes up to him in this interview and says, you must be born again. Like Nathaniel, this blew his mind. Can you imagine what he was going through in his mind? He's the teacher of Israel. He's a rabbi. He's in his probably in his mid-50s. He's been there, done that, attended all the meetings, gone to all the, the synagogue readings of the Old Testament. He's done everything that Judaism has told him that he needs to do. And then Christ says, you have to be born again. And so he says... How can I be born again unless I enter again the second time into my mother's womb and go through that process all over again? See where he's coming from? He's having a very, very difficult time with what Jesus has to say. And Jesus said, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. It completely knocked the theological crutches right out from under him. 
It takes the whole foundational basis upon which he's lived his life and I'm sure taught many, many times in seminary. It's just blown all that away. He clearly told Nicodemus, except the man be born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. To be born of water was, is it from a Jewish expression, was, was a physical birth. And Jesus is talking about this whole idea of being born of the spirit. There must be a spiritual rebirth for one to be able to enter the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus being born a Jew, it was insufficient. Everything that he had done up until this point was insufficient for him to enter into the kingdom of God. So what's the application? What's the application for us? He, he finishes, Jesus finishes the text as you read down through uh, to 51. He gives him two basic steps uh, concerning G- Nicodemus' spiritual rebirth. And I want to go through this real quickly. The first step was accomplished by God in the death, burial, and resurrection of the God-man, Jesus Christ. The first step in this process of being reborn spiritually was God's responsibility, and that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, in this person that he would know as being the Messiah. And in order to gain eternal life, he would have to believe and put his faith and trust in that person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. The second step in the process was for Nicodemus to respond in belief. To respond to this interview in belief and believe that Jesus Christ was who he said he was. i got to tell you, as you go through and you read these Gospels and you read what happens to Nicodemus, it takes him three years to recover from this interview. Three years to sort through what Jesus told him he needs to do to become born again. That's the kind of impact that Jesus has on people. And I want to share with you, and I'll leave you with this. We'll close with this. You cannot have an encounter, a face-to-face encounter with Jesus Christ without your life being absolutely, radically turned upside down. It's impossible. And we just see two examples here. One of Nathaniel. He's coming up into the relationship, kind of making a snide remark under his breath. Any good thing come from Nazareth. And within just a matter of a few words, Nathaniel just absolutely is blown away by who the Messiah is. Contrast that with Nicodemus, on the other hand, who's affluent, he's well-educated, he has the right pedigree, he thinks he's got everything going in the right direction in his life, and Jesus Christ knocks all that completely out from under him, and it takes him three years to recover before he actually believes in the saving faith in who Jesus is. But i got to tell you, the result is the same, and it's the same for each of us in this room. And extend the same invitation to you that's been extended to these two men. If you come into face-to-face contact with who Jesus is from a first-century Jewish perspective, from the Gospels, your life will be absolutely radically turned upside down as well. And I encourage each of you in this room, if you have not placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, get into the Gospels and, and get with someone that can help and teach you what it means uh, what Jesus, who he is and, and what he's about. And he will absolutely, radically change your life forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful for these words. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the fact that Jesus will meet each of us where we are with all of our apprehension, with all of our doubt, with all of our skepticism. He'll meet us where we are. And it's an individual thing. He meets Nathaniel differently than he meets Nicodemus, differently than he meets the woman at the well. It's an individual thing. But nevertheless, he meets with the same goal in mind, and that is that you believe in his name, believe in who he was as your Lord and Savior. And I pray for that for each one of us here this morning. 
And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.